Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Dilium and Onx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, um, garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in, that, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So are the Lord. Amen. Well, the way that uh, Paddy just finished his reading was exactly how I was going to start the sermon. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me just read a few verses from the Psalms about what the word of God is. One of the uh, one of the wise things that God does is he puts us in local churches, he gives us his word, and he says, feed each other with that word. And we were uh, thinking about that this morning, the shepherd. A shepherd knows their sheep. And in a church, we know each other. So when you feed on God's word, you do so in a context. And I look out and see in many lives here just huge things going on. But tonight, we're shut in or listening. Let me just read some stuff before we turn to Genesis. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Brittle, I think that's what it means.
Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. I am yours. Save me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your word. Your testimonies are my heritage forevermore, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to do your word forever to the end. Hold me up that I may be safe. Protect me. Speak to me. I love your word. So let's pray that some of that will happen. Our Father, we sometimes forget that what's in our hands in the Bible is the living word of God. Whenever we want to hear you speak to us, we just read this book that you have inspired. And Sunday by Sunday and in our small groups and in our one-to-ones and in our personal reading, you speak into our lives in ways that are strikingly poignant and relevant, especially when we listen. And tonight, we're a gathering of people living out life in a world that is broken and fallen and seemingly as far from the paradise of creation as we could imagine. And yet tonight in this section of your word, you have wonderful things to say to us, not least about paradise restored through Jesus Christ. Lord, will you take us as we are And by your Spirit, will you lift up the hearts of the most cast down here and strengthen them? Will you supernaturally, miraculously, wonderfully speak as the living God into our lives? For we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Now, Genesis chapter 2. We looked at the prologue over two weeks just before Easter. And uh, now we come to uh, section 1 of the book which runs from chapter 2, verse 4, through to chapter 4, verse uh, 26. Each of the major sections of the book begin 
with the phrase, these are the generations, so on and so forth. Now, tonight, we're in the first half of Genesis 2. Chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. The title of which is simply this, Paradise. And then next Sunday, and maybe the Sunday after, we will focus on chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, on men and women and relationships and roles. And there's much that we'll learn in the second half of the chapter. I want us to really listen to what the Bible as a whole says about marriage alongside singleness with the prayer that as a church we will thoroughly and biblically embrace both And we'll do that next time. And we'll also consider the roles of men and women within the household and in the household of God, the church, from Genesis. But today, paradise. And uh, it's striking when you think of Genesis 2 we think of the second half of Genesis 2, but not of the first half. Now, we associate the word paradise with the most beautiful places on the earth. The top three paradise islands are Palawal is number one in the Philippines. The Maldives and French Polynesia. Number one, Palawal, is a stunning archipelago ranked consistently as the most beautiful island of paradise in the world. Marketed, of course, as paradise on earth. Somebody's going to tell us afterwards they've been on holiday there. <laughs> Paradise is where every fairy story ends. What we read to our little children is of paradise. They lived happily ever after. And if the film at the cinema doesn't have a happy ending, we feel aggrieved. And we leave frustrated. The songs we sing, the stories we tell, the places to see before we die speak of an inbuilt longing for paradise. Or let me put it another way happily ever after is a fundamental longing in the human soul that is real because it goes all the way back to the creation of the world. Left within humanity, 
and all human beings still bear to a degree the image of God. There is a longing in the human soul for paradise. Now, Genesis 2 describes paradise. What is paradise? And this is, I guess, the most important thing. Just think of it in terms of normal life. The things that cause us the most joy in life are relationships that are good. The things that cause us most hurt and distress are relationships that are bad. Places, experiences do not impact us anything like to the same extent as relationships. Now, what is paradise? There's what I think Genesis 2 is teaching us. Paradise is humanity in perfect relationship with God. When that is in place, everything else is in place. Paradise is humanity in perfect relationship with God. So fundamentally, paradise is not a place. It is a place, but it's not fundamentally a place. It is a relationship with God. And if you think forward to paradise restored in Christ, it is the restoration of a relationship with God from which everything flows. Now, let's stick for now in Genesis 2. Consider first, under this definition of paradise as humanity in perfect relationship with God, God's intimate relationship with humanity. Now, from the prologue, we've already seen that humanity is special, the pinnacle of creation. We saw that that is signaled in the text of the prologue in all sorts of ways. For example, the repeated phrase, let there be, changes with humanity to let us make. God's assessment of each part of his creation, God saw that it was good, changes with humanity to it was very good. God's final act in creation was the creation of humanity. Then his creation is perfect and he rested from all the work that he had done. But God did not just say that humanity is the pinnacle of his creation. He made humanity the pinnacle of his creation, not by what he gave humanity to do primarily, but by the fact that he made humanity in his image. Let us make humanity in our image. That's chapter 1, after our likeness. In our image, after our likeness, mean that humanity is created for relationship with God and their fellow humanity. That humanity is rational 
so that God can reason with us and entrust us with the mandate to rule over his world. Now, that's the prologue. That's enough. But what we get in chapter 2 is richer. God wants us to know. Now, he needs us to know what paradise is for us to truly understand what has been lost, for us to truly understand what has been given back to us. You cannot understand what we have been saved for without first understanding what we have been saved from. This is what God did in creation. Genesis wants us to know how special humanity is to him, how he delights in humanity, how he lavishes so much on humanity. So read with me again verse 7 of chapter 2. It's an extraordinary verse. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. It's almost like God got down in the dust of the earth and he formed humanity with his hands from the dust of his creation. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Now with the rest of creation, God speaks, let there be and there was. With humanity, it is different. God makes humanity. God forms humanity from the dust of the ground. And what God formed from the dust of the ground is astonishing and remarkable. Every uh, Christmas, we gave one of our children, the little one, uh, books of facts. And unlike most children, he learned them all so that he knows all sorts of answers to things that don't matter at all. So I was consulting one of his books this week about how astonishing and remarkable we are. So I'm going to just quote some stats at you, and I hope they're actually true. So your body is made up of seven octillion atoms. So I did verify with the young man that octillion is a concept. Seven followed by 27 zeros. The human eye can distinguish up to 7.5 million different colors. Which made me think, are there 7.5 million different colors? Apparently so. I think this one is great. Your fingers can feel a ridge as small as 13 nanometers in size. Infinitely smaller than the human hair. And if all the DNA in your body was uncoiled, whatever that means, it would stretch 10 billion miles, which is from Earth to Pluto and back. We're blessed with the marvels of science. King David wasn't. He just looked at himself in the mirror 
And he said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, why is this in Genesis 2? So that we are not seduced by the lie of the devil, that it's in him we have liberty and life. Life is in creation, in humanity. The devil had no part in creating us as humans to be like this. But as creation of humanity, and we're still in the realm of creation, not the fall or redemption, is not just intricate, it is intimate. Now, I think this verse has really grabbed me this week and has warmed my heart. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The word breathed is an intimate word. One of its meanings is kiss. And we can say without any sense of irreverence that God gave humanity the kiss of life. God is the life giver. Humanity is fearfully, wonderfully, intimately made. God's intimate relationship with humanity there is no other relationship in creation like it. Indeed, anything like it. Paradise is humanity in perfect relationship with God first. And because God delights in humanity, he wants to give them the very best of creation. So consider now, and this is beyond the sheet, God's wonderful provision for humanity. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God created a perfect environment for humanity to live in. It was a garden in Eden. Notice, I'm not going to be seduced into saying, and I don't think the text of Genesis wants us to do this, that the garden was the paradise. The garden was perfect. Paradise is the relationship between humanity and God. But the garden was perfect. What are we told about it? It was in the east. In the garden there was every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Note that the trees are not simply good for food, but pleasant to the sight. So here is the mandate for tree loving. I wouldn't go as far as tree hugging. The trees are not simply good for food. They are pleasant to the sight. The beauty of creation as well as the practical. God wants humanity to delight in the beauty of creation. He wants the best for humanity God is not grey, and nor is his creation, or nor are his creatures supremely humanity, with those and for those with whom he has an intimate relationship. He wants to delight our senses, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, we're told a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. 
And uh, so from Eden, the garden, a physical place, I think Genesis is teaching us that, springs up a river that watered the garden and flowed out to water the earth. The four rivers are called Pishon, Gion, Tigris, and Euphrates. Real rivers. What are we told about them? The Pishon flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Uh, that's probably Arabia in the ancient world where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx are there. What a place. Uh, what is Bedellium is a fragrant resin. I mean, I'm taking other people's words for this. Related to myrrh and onyx. The land is good. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Some believe Cush could be a reference to Mesopotamia. Others, that it's a general term for the African land south of Egypt. Why am I? I'm reading the explanations in the Bible commentaries, the, the scholarship, just to say this is not pie in the sky and made up stuff. It's not giving us every factual detail. The Tigris-Euphrates, the great river system of southwestern Asia, comprises the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which flow roughly parallel courses through the heart of the Middle East. The lower portion called the land between the rivers, the cradle of civilization. Now, the point of Genesis 2 is not to set us off on a quest to identify exactly where these rivers flowed or still flow, and the locations ancient and modern. That is not the point. The point is that they all flowed out of the garden in Eden to refresh and irrigate the earth. That is the point. But there is more than enough factual detail in the text, and the rest of the Bible is interpretation, that they are real rivers and lands, and that the garden God created for humanity to live in was a real physical space. Now, we are told that the garden is full of trees, but two trees are singled out. The second half of verse 9, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What are these trees? Well, here's what I would like to suggest. The tree of life is the tree of life. I think it is what it says. It's simply symbolic of the life God created, life on earth. And, and what, what, what is the, the epitome of uh, God's creation? It is eternal rest. It is eternal life. Death had no concept. Imagine a world where death was unknown. So put a tree of life in the middle of it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands in the garden, I think, to symbolize that God the Creator is sovereign over all creation, including humanity, with whom he has a perfect relationship, but not an equal relationship. God's relationship with humanity is unique. Only humanity created in his image, but humanity is not God. In the garden... In creation, only God is God. Only God is the creator. And that is what I think the tree of the knowledge and good of evil is. Paradise in 
Humanity in perfect relationship with God, God's intimate relationship with humanity, his wonderful provision. In verse 15, he puts humanity to work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work is part of God's creation. Work is part of creation. It is not part of a fallen world. Work is part of perfection. Work is good. God dignifies work. God is a worker. Part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to work. And what is the work God has created us to do? It's very general in Genesis. It is to look after everything he has made. God is the creator, humanity the cultivator. Work, however, is not the goal of creation. The goal of creation is rest. Rest in the sense of Genesis 2, 1 to 3. The goal of creation is spiritual rest, the enjoyment of creation, the praise and worship of God, the Creator. Paradise. Humanity in perfect relationship with God. An intimate relationship, wonderful provision, work. And then... Fourthly, God requires humanity's trusting obedience. That's verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. One of the reasons we have prep meetings during the week for our sermons is that somebody can stumble on what is the heart application of a chapter. And one of our uh, guys did that this week with this comment. One of the most evil and seductive lies Satan spreads in this fallen world is that God is restrictive and that he, Satan, is the liberator and the life giver. Our God is a God of rules. Genesis 2 blows that apart. That's the lie Satan told to seduce Adam and Eve. To say that God is restrictive and that Satan is the liberator and life giver is a terrible, evil lie. God is the liberator, God is the life giver. The wonderful liberty and privileges he gave to humanity in creation. The paradise of a perfect relationship. The life he breathed into them. That's the context to hear the command God gives humanity in verses 16 and 17. But notice first the command is in the first place liberating you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, that wonderful array of trees in the garden, and the one prohibition you shall not eat. This means that in creation, God gives humanity free will. He entrusts humanity with free will. God's desire for humanity is that they respond to the perfect relationship they enjoy with him in trusting obedience. And in light of all of that, we hear the one prohibition rightly, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
and you come back to the hearts of the definition of paradise. You see, paradise, if it is, and I think it is from Genesis, humanity in perfect relationship with God, that must be dependent on the protection of that relationship. It must be dependent on humanity's trusting obedience. Humanity cannot usurp the place of God in creation. Paradise is dependent on the sustaining of that right relationship. If that relationship is broken, paradise is lost. And that's why any notion of paradise must be connected to God. Paradise is not what, it is who. Now, let's consider more briefly, and we'll come back to this in much more depth in the coming weeks, paradise lost. Now, we began tonight with the observation that the songs we sing, that the stories we tell and the places to see before we die, all speak of an inbuilt longing for paradise. Happily ever after is the fundamental longing in the human soul that echoes creation. We've seen what paradise is, what God created, humanity in perfect relationship with him. So it's right we have that longing. Longing for what has been lost, paradise lost, Much more on that to come. But Genesis 1 and 2 is not the world we live in. Paradise has been lost through the disobedience of Adam, the breaking of the perfect relationship with God, and as a consequence of that, the breaking of the whole of creation. Death entered the world. And you see, this teaches us what sin is. Sin is disobedience of God. It is relational. Genesis 2 is wonderful. Genesis 3 is the devastating undoing of all the greatness and perfection of Genesis 2. Let me read one verse from Genesis 2 alongside one from Genesis 3. This is Genesis 2, that wonderful verse. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And then Genesis 3.19 to Adam, God said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Death is the mark of a broken relationship, a shattered paradise. And what also happens, and we can say loads more about this if we had time, when humanity no longer sees creation in the right relationship to God, when humanity no longer sees what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there to stop them doing, what happens is that we deify the creation and not the creator. Our goal in life is no longer to enjoy God, but to enjoy the gifts of God. 
as the first place. Our goal in life is no longer to worship God, but to worship and to idolize the creation, whether our work or the perfect holiday, good things, part of God's creation, but not when they replace God. Then they become idols that will never satisfy us. Satan will always tell us that they will if we just had a little bit more. But we will never know true satisfaction or paradise without God. Now, let me close this Lord's Day with this most wonderful, wonderful stuff, paradise restored. Paradise, humanity's perfect relationship with God lost, but wonderfully restored. Now from, I'm just seeing how many more sheets I've got. We can't shorten this bit. It's just wonderful. And you know, as I have wrestled with this this week, I've been praying for lots of you and for myself that, that God will just whisper these truths into our hearts. What's happened in the Christian's life? From the moment humanity disobeyed God, and paradise was lost. The perfect relationship broken. God's purpose was to fix that broken relationship, to restore the perfect relationship. And we know this stuff, but there's a difference between knowing it and feeling it and it raising your affections for God. The, the, the plan culminated in Jesus, God's Son coming to earth as a man, Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. So here's Romans 5. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Through Jesus' death, we are forgiven and restored in our relationship with God. But Jesus didn't come just to forgive us. He came to create a new humanity. The cross forgives the resurrection brings new life. We are born again, just like creation. And it is just like creation. It is no less than that. It is as much as that. New life in the Spirit and the life we have as Christians is eternal life. Now, there's so much here we could dwell on. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was the first dead man to come back from the dust. He was the first born of the new birth. He was the first born of the new creation. And uh, over Easter on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at John's gospel. We finished this morning with John 21. There are wonderful chapters in John as he describes the events around Jesus' death. John 20 is the chapter that focuses on the resurrection. Let me read these verses from John 20, verses 19. Just listen to this. This is the resurrected Christ, the firstborn of the new creation, the first man who came back from the dust to life on the evening of that first day of the week. Resurrection Day. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then this. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. God breathed life into Adam. Jesus breathes life into us. The kiss of the Son of God. The kiss of life. New life in the Holy Spirit. Our broken relationship with God has been restored. And that means, as we sit here tonight, with all the chaos in our lives, paradise has been restored in the most fundamental sense. Your relationship with God is back where creation was. Paradise restored. You can worship God. You can speak to God. He can speak to you. He invests you as his new creation with responsibility to restore the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. It is a wonderful truth that our relationship with God, and I keep saying this can't be true, but it, it is true. It, it, it's true from the epistles that, that are we fully forgiven? Yes. Are we righteous? Are we children of God? Uh, uh, yes. Therefore, paradise is restored. We are still called to trusting obedience to trust and obey God's word. But as Christians, we are in a perfect relationship with God. In the most fundamental sense, paradise has been restored. We don't have resurrection bodies yet. And we are not free from the effects of sin and suffering. Only then when we live in the new creation. Now, if we had time, I'm going to read it to you anyway. This is the new creation. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with the 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. They will see his face and his name. That's, that's not yet, but that is coming and guaranteed because paradise has been restored with the restored relationship. We long for the return of Jesus. Why the delay? 
The delay is so people can deal with a fundamental issue, the broken relationship with God. Say you could get on a plane and really fly away to paradise. What would people do? They'd get on the plane and they would miss out restoring that broken relationship with God. Tonight, every one of us listening, another chance to find paradise, the answer to the fundamental longing that goes all the way back to creation is found in Jesus Christ through faith in him. What an offer I get to give as a preacher that you can enter into paradise tonight. Today, Jesus said to the man who died beside him, you will be with me in paradise. That does not mean a place because the new creation is still not there. It meant that today that man, repentant on his cross, was restored into that perfect relationship with God. And if you sit here tonight with all manner of chaos in your lives, as some of us have, live out the rest of your days on earth in the paradise of a perfectly restored relationship with God. And uh, what does that liberate you to do? Well, one thing it liberates Christians to do, and Christians need to... Stop being anxious about this. We are the people because we see creation in relation to the Creator again. We should be enjoying good food, enjoying art, enjoying music, enjoying sport, enjoying creation because we will not deify it. We will enjoy it. Enjoy rest. Enjoy singing. God is not grey. And nor should Christians be. And our task is to proclaim that paradise can be found through Jesus Christ. Our task is to refute Satan's seductive lie that liberty and life is found without God. That status wonderfully belongs to God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to every true Christian. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would seal these great truths in our hearts tonight for comfort where that is needed, and it is needed in many, many lives. That whatever assails us in this life, to be in right relationship with God is to have found paradise again. 
Lord, we long for the day when the consequences of that will be manifested in the bodies we inhabit and the earth we live on. But you will hold that back until people come back into right relationship with you. So help us, God. Raise our affections for Jesus. Raise them up. And be with us over the coming week and just even tonight and tomorrow. Give us your strength. For Jesus' sake. Amen.